In our previous podcast, relating to regulatory considerations and licensing collaboration and option deals in the life sciences space, which was the first of our two-part series, we talked about deal structuring, the potential need for regulatory approvals, and other potential antitrust pitfalls. This is the second in that two-part series, covering the regulatory landscape and innovation-driven industries. And today, we'll focus on another important issue that frequently comes up in deals in the life sciences and tech sectors, that is, data. For companies in innovative sectors, the data held or accessed by the company can be an important part of its value. It's therefore unsurprising that data is often a key part of the rationale for a transaction, which means transaction processes need to properly account for the complexities and evolving rules in this space. On top of this, Antitrust authorities are scrutinizing data-related issues more closely and taking a more inventive approach to assessing any competition concerns. This means deals in innovative sectors may be subject to longer review periods, and it may be necessary to think about data-related remedies up front. I'm Megan Rissmiller, a partner in our antitrust practice based in Washington and your host for today, and I'm joined by three colleagues to talk about these issues. Chris Lyon, a partner and global co-head of our data privacy and security practice based in Silicon Valley. Kaori Yamada, a partner in our antitrust practice based in Tokyo. And Ricky Haria, a senior associate in our antitrust practice based in London. Thanks for joining me today. So Chris, for deals where data is an important part of the target's offering or value, how does this impact the approach for key parts of the transaction process, like diligence and integration planning? What are some of the key things to look out for? Well, that's right, Megan. We've been seeing a lot of data-driven M&A deals. Some deals focus on the value of the technology, while other deals focus on the value of the data itself. And when your focus is on the data, there are two key areas to consider. First, you want to assess how well the target has complied with legal requirements in collecting and using that data. Even if the target hasn't been subject to any litigation or enforcement actions, the target's practices may come under greater scrutiny from regulators and the media after the deal is made public, especially if the buyer is a well-known industry leader. As a result, it's important to identify early on whether there may be any major gaps or deficiencies, and if so, when and how those might be remedied. Second, you want to consider your plans for the target's data after the deal closes. Even if the target has a treasure trove of data, that doesn't necessarily mean that your company can use the data just because it now owns the target. If your company wants to use the target's data for its own purposes, maybe by marketing to the target's customer list or using the target's user data to train your own AI models, you may encounter obstacles under privacy laws, privacy policies, contract terms, and so forth. For example, privacy laws generally restrict the sharing of personal data with other legal entities, even if that might be a new buyer or affiliated entity. As a result, when you're a buyer, the due diligence process should focus not only on how well the target has complied with privacy laws historically, but also on what steps parties could take before or after closing to try to ensure you can use the data for the purposes for which you're buying it. In some cases, this may involve giving notice and choice to individuals about the proposed sharing and uses of the new data, for example. Sticking with you, Chris, businesses will often operate across multiple countries, sometimes on a global basis. With countries introducing new privacy laws or changing existing privacy laws, what impact has this had? 
I'd say that one major impact is the privacy and data protection laws are not only expanding around the world, but they're getting stricter, including right here in the U.S. For example, these laws are requiring greater transparency to individuals about the information being collected and used about them, including the right to see specific pieces of information that companies maintain on them. These laws also are placing greater restrictions on data sharing, such as requiring companies to allow individuals to opt out of data sharing in some cases, and even requiring companies to obtain an individual's opt-in consent to data sharing in other cases. We're seeing more and more of these restrictions, including here in the U.S., which historically has been more flexible about data sharing than many other jurisdictions. So this appears to be a trend across many countries. So on one hand, companies are deriving more and more value from data, including companies and industries that haven't traditionally been data-oriented. On the other hand, the legal restrictions on data, particularly personal data, keep increasing. As a result, the stakes are higher than ever for companies as they seek to leverage the value of their data in this increasingly complex regulatory landscape. So let's move on to merger control. Across the U.S., Europe, and APAC, it appears that antitrust authorities are increasingly looking at data-related issues during their merger review processes. Ricky, is that the case? Data-related issues in merger control reviews are not necessarily new in Europe. For example, the European Commission had explored these types of issues in quite a few historic high-profile cases. So there was Microsoft LinkedIn back in 2016 and also Apple Shazam back in 2018, But ultimately, no concerns were found with respect to data-related issues. But it's certainly the case that we have seen a marked increase in authorities focusing on data-related issues. And this is now a common line of inquiry in deals in innovative sectors, particularly in the tech and life sciences space. And we're seeing more cases where authorities are ultimately finding data-related concerns. A couple of good examples are the recent Google Fitbit transaction, where the European Commission looked closely at whether Fitbit data would provide some form of advantage to Google's advertising business, and ultimately remedies were required to secure clearance. And data concerns were also a contributing factor to the CMA blocking the acquisition of Giphy by Meta. And this also involved looking at what types of data Meta could potentially have access to from Giphy's customers. And this increased focus on data is not just true for deals in the tech and life sciences space. We're seeing innovative deals in other sectors, such as financial services, also being analysed with this in mind. Are we seeing these trends as well in Asia? Asian jurisdictions are not necessarily wading in as vigorously as the EC and CMA in scrutinising data aspects in merger reviews. But the exceptions are Japan and Australia. Google Fitbit case was scrutinised in Japan and Australia, increasingly outside the um, mandatory framework, interestingly, in both jurisdictions. Despite the voluntary process, the Australian process in particular was more aggressive than the European process in some aspects, for example, rejecting behavioural remedies. While in relation to technology mergers, the JFTC now reviews data foreclosure risk almost by default. Thanks, Carrie. What are the types of theories or concerns that authorities are looking at? Yeah, so an increasing variety of novel data-related theories are being pursued across these tech and life science uh, deals. 
So, for example, in particular, authorities are scrutinizing whether the combined business will be able to use its combined data to give itself an advantage and weaken rivals across related and adjacent markets. And therefore, the impact of the transaction on the wider ecosystem of players. So, for example, in recent cases, number one, authorities have explored where data is a key input for players in downstream or upstream market, and therefore, whether the combined business could weaken players in such downstream or upstream markets by restricting access to data or worsening the terms of access. So this was observed in LSEG, a Refinitiv case, or Meta Giphy case. And number two, authorities have also explored whether competitors are reliant on retaining interoperability with key software or hardware, including data interoperability, and therefore whether the combined business could weaken rivals by restricting access to data or hindering interoperability between services. And this was observed in Google Fitbit case or Siemens Healthineers and Varian. And I think the other thing we're seeing is authorities are focusing on whether an acquirer will be able to entrench its market position or somehow obtain a more dominant position by aggregating its data with that of the target company. And these types of issues are particularly looked at where the acquirer already holds a strong market position or offers some form of gatekeeper type service. And some of the recent cases that I mentioned earlier show that even small incremental increases in data can raise issues and be scrutinised quite closely by authorities. And we shouldn't leave the U.S. out of this discussion. We're seeing issues related to data in transactions in the U.S. So, for example, in the United Health Change Healthcare deal, the DOJ's lawsuit to challenge that transaction alleges concerns over the control of data. So in particular, as the wide usage of change healthcare's insurance claim processing technology could provide United Health's access to rivals' data and therefore competitive insights or innovations. The DOJ is challenging both a horizontal theory of harm, but also this data access relates to a vertical foreclosure theory of harm and is explicitly focused on the data that change healthcare possesses. So putting these recent examples aside, looking ahead, Kaori, is it all bad news for businesses doing data-driven deals? I would say definitely not. Despite the increased scrutiny, authorities remain receptive to strong arguments and evidence around why deals will not raise competition concerns. Indeed, in a number of high-profile cases, such as Microsoft Nuance or Meta Customer, Authorities have looked closely at data-related theories of harm and ultimately found no concerns. At the same time, while the theory of harm around data in the merger review context is not yet established, agencies tend to listen to third-party complaints, unfortunately, more than they would in other issues, and therefore the outcome of the process is more likely to be influenced by market testing. It is certainly worth spending time at the early stages of a deal to build up the evidence base. So, for example, number one, any incremental increase in data will not have any meaningful impact on the acquirer, given the data is not unique or particularly valuable over and above current data available to the acquirer. And number two, 
Rivals currently or subsequently having access to comparable data from its own activities or other third party sources. And we're also seeing authorities place quite a lot of weight on internal documents. And that's true, particularly when looking at the transaction rationale, synergies, and also just broader commercial strategies that may utilize data. And even in the initial phase one inquiries being undertaken by authorities in Europe, like the CMA and the European Commission, often we see them requesting thousands or even tens of thousands of documents. And I think that means it's also important to think upfront about how to characterize data in any transaction rationale and also in determining and formulating synergies to ensure that there is a clear pro-competitive and pro-consumer narrative and that this is consistent with the internal documents. So if authorities do find concerns, it seems this is an area where it's possible to offer behavioral remedies to alleviate concerns and get the deal through at least outside of the United States. Kari, any thoughts on this? Yes, in principle, while some authorities continue to express a strong preference for structural divestment remedies, we have seen authorities accept long-term behavioural remedies to alleviate data-related concerns, typically accommodated with a compliance mechanism, such as a monitoring trustee and or fast-track dispute resolution mechanisms for impacted third parties. Types of remedies that have been accepted recently include, first example, data silos, where certain types of data are separated via technical measures and not used for specific purposes, such as advertising. And the second example is access to data and APIs, in particular to continue offering data and other interoperability functionalities on an open access basis to third parties. As those data-related remedies are not established yet, during market testing, third-party competitors really often try to push hard to extract a greater benefit for themselves. More data disclosure or API interoperability for third parties or more straight jackets or restrictions for the merging parties. It is therefore very important to convince agencies of the importance of proportionality and the preservation of future innovation incentives. And authorities are often concerned about whether behavioural remedies will be effective, implementable and easy to monitor for the purposes of assessing compliance. And one thing we've seen is authorities making express statements on this. So the UK, German and Australian authorities recently released a joint statement where they criticise behavioural remedies, noting that they can become quickly outdated, raise significant circumvention risks, and these are types of things which should never be a matter of trust. So as part of an effective remedy strategy, it really is important to put a lot of work into demonstrating that remedies are technically feasible and effective, can be implemented quickly and monitored easily to ensure compliance, but also that they don't themselves raise tensions with other laws, for example, data privacy laws. So back in the U.S., uh, data-related behavioral remedies have come into recent focus in the United Health Change Healthcare deal, where proposed behavioral remedies such as data firewalls to prevent the transfer of competitively sensitive data have been deemed insufficient to resolve the DOJ's vertical foreclosure concerns. And this theory, of course, is one of the theories that the parties are now litigating in court. 
This highlights the challenges of proposing convincing behavioral remedies to resolve those data-related concerns. And, and from a data privacy perspective, when remedies are more restrictive about the user sharing of data, there's less likely to be a data privacy concern. However, if proposed remedies would involve opening up greater access to user data or other data about individuals, which we're hearing a lot of discussion about, this may be difficult to reconcile with privacy and data protection laws. As we talked about earlier, privacy laws are becoming more and more restrictive of data sharing. It's also worth noting here that privacy laws are expanding the concept of personal data to capture more data that might not have been considered personally identifiable in the past, like IP address, for instance, or online identifiers. And that will make it harder to argue going forward that when we're looking at data associated with the user or device that it isn't personal data and isn't subject to these growing restrictions on data sharing. As a result, it will be important for a company's antitrust team to work closely with its data and IP teams in assessing any proposed remedies that may involve greater data use or sharing, because these may in fact be in tension, if not conflict, with privacy and data protection laws. So turning to a slightly different topic, another shift we're seeing is greater consideration of looser forms of collaboration that don't amount to outright M&A. This was a central theme in our prior podcast on antitrust issues and licensing collaboration and option deals in life sciences. And of course, these types of non-M&A collaborations also include data-related arrangements, such as data sharing and data pooling. Chris, is this something you're seeing in practice? Yes, it definitely is something we're seeing in practice. And there's no one-size-fits-all approach or one single structure to these sorts of arrangements. For example, it might involve joint marketing, where two or more parties send their marketing data to a third-party service provider that will analyze it collectively and use it for targeted joint marketing campaigns. Or we see a lot of data pooling and data sharing arrangements for fraud detection and fraud prevention, where again, parties will allow their data to be used collectively in order to benefit all of them and arguably the larger ecosystem in detecting fraud. And authorities are also alive to these considerations. In fact, we've seen authorities in Europe encouraging data sharing and pooling initiatives, particularly by smaller players where they think this can have a positive impact on competition, innovation and possibly levelling the playing field. For example, European Commission Executive Vice President Versteger has highlighted the possible benefits to competition and innovation from enabling greater access and sharing of data. And the CMA has also voiced a similar opinion around what it calls responsible data sharing. And as a result, we've seen certain authorities endorse and take a lead role in monitoring the implementation of data sharing arrangements. And a really good example of this is the CMA, where following a market investigation into retail banking, it took a lead role in implementing a remedy around driving forward open banking in the UK, intended to enable consumers to move and manage money across different banks more easily. And this type of arrangement has been facilitated by user-initiated data sharing between banks and third parties. So Chris, I mean, how are regulators dealing with this potential tension between data privacy laws and antitrust considerations? I mean, I'd say from a privacy perspective that the focus is very much on protecting the personal data and giving individuals choice where possible. And so privacy laws, as we've talked about, regulate data sharing generally, whether that involves M&A or the other types of data sharing arrangements we're discussing here. 
Under laws like the GDPR, you generally need a specific legal basis or the individual's consent to share an individual's personal data with a third party for its own purposes. And under laws like the California Consumer Privacy Act, you at least need to allow individuals to opt out of the sale of their personal information. And some data-related arrangements might be viewed as a sale if they're allowing you to derive a benefit from that sharing. As a result, while there's significant interest in data pooling, there also is a focus on allowing individuals under privacy laws to exercise choice in many areas. And that can be potentially intention a bit, I think, with what antitrust regulators are trying to achieve. And the same is also true on the antitrust side. While regulators have expressed a positive view on the benefits and efficiencies that could be generated from data pooling and sharing arrangements, some of their actions also highlight the antitrust risks. And these antitrust risks seem to focus around two main areas. The first of which is something which is more common around the exchange of competitively sensitive information. The second area relates to access to data pools, and this can arise where the data provides an important competitive advantage. In these situations, it's really important to think about who and who is not allowed access to the data pool and the terms of access. To provide a bit more clarity and guidance to companies and in order to help them balance these pros and cons of data pooling and sharing arrangements, regulators are currently updating their guidelines. A really good example of this is the European Commission, which has published a draft of its revised horizontal cooperation guidelines for consultation. And this provides additional guidance around data pooling and sharing arrangements, as well as some areas where mitigations might be useful. For example, thinking about whether any technical or practical restrictions are needed around what information is accessed by participants to a data pool. And also considering whether data pools should be provided on an open access basis, and if not, what terms there should be around access to the data pool. For those companies which are interested in data sharing and pooling arrangements, these consultations provide a really good opportunity in order to move the direction of travel around what is and what is not permitted. I guess Asian jurisdictions are behind US or European agencies in terms of written guidance or competitive collaboration. But as the business demands are rising, especially for new technologies such as environmental goods, connected cars or EV, agencies are increasingly conscious of the needs for clearer rules in this space. The JFDC has a voluntary consultation and clearance mechanism and generally been quite generous in signing off on data cooperation for innovative purposes, even if the combined market share is really high. In contrast, many Asian jurisdictions do not have such pre-clearance mechanisms nor clear guidance, and so the risk is left to companies' self-assessment. So let's end by looking at future developments and what businesses should be looking out for in this space. There are merger control and other competition reforms being proposed by different governments and authorities, some of which have a data angle. So, for instance, President Biden's executive order on competition encourages the U.S. Federal Trade Commission to establish rules on data collection. And also, there are various bills that have been introduced before the House of Representatives that target the activities of platforms and also seek to establish data portability and interoperability requirements and in some cases, proposing to give third parties access to certain data that these platforms hold. Do we see these trends emerging elsewhere, Chris? Well, I would say it's going to be interesting to see how privacy laws 
evolve here because as we talked about, the privacy laws are getting stricter. And I think we will see over time, not only just tension, but actual conflicts between the goals of these different laws. Because I think in the competition space, there can be a lot of reasons, like you're saying, Megan, to promote sharing. But in the privacy realm, really the movement is against that. So I think it'll be interesting to see how regulators try to balance the differing objectives of privacy and antitrust laws. And we're seeing a lot of reform activity in Europe. For example, under the Digital Markets Act in the EU, it's likely that there'll be some form of obligation for companies which are designated as gatekeepers to inform the European Commission of all acquisitions in the digital sector. So if this is implemented, these reforms will mean many more deals involving data being notifiable and scrutinised in Europe. And it's also worth thinking about some of the reforms which aren't necessarily specific to M&A and merger control thresholds. So, for example, there are various regulatory proposals, both in, for example, the EU Digital Markets Act, but also more broadly, such as with the EU Data Act, that will impact how companies can combine data across their different services and also the extent to which companies are required to provide access to their data to users and to third parties and how to balance that against some of the considerations which Chris mentioned on the privacy side. These reforms are particularly important to take into account during due diligence processes because they may ultimately impact the value that can be derived from the target's data. I suppose like in Europe, there's an ongoing debate in Asia jurisdiction too on whether existing competition laws is sufficient to regulate data-related issues or a new legislation is needed, which is dedicated to the digital industry. The Korean agency seems braver than others in utilising the existing competition law regime to tackle data and digital issues, whereas in contrast, the Japanese JFDC seems to be hesitant to enforce existing rules fully on data-related cases. As a result, it appears that the policy direction is heading towards new legislation aligned with European DMA and DSA. From a totally different angle, the Chinese government is now trying to take control of Chinese platform through a series of new data-related legislation, which allow strong intervention on private companies. How these new Chinese rules will be implemented will remain to be seen. Well, it seems like there's so much moving in this space. I just want to thank you all so much, Kaori, Chris, and Ricky, for joining me today for this discussion. And we'll certainly continue to watch as everything develops.